Hi, this is co-host Patrick Baird. I'd like to tell you about my new military science fiction novel, The Nowhere Navy. Decorated officer Frank Ortega reaches his final duty station. An aging Navy Corvette, the ISS Persistent, stationed in a solar system on the furthest edge of colonized space. Located light years from the war front against the mysterious enhancers, the Persistent is crewed by a motley collection of fleet rejects and raw recruits. Life aboard the ship remains slack and unmilitary until they receive a shocking signal. Most of the rest of the fleet was destroyed in a major battle. The Persistent is left alone to guard its solar system against the inevitable invasion they have no chance of stopping. The Nowhere Navy is available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback formats. Thank you. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 39 of Unknown Orbits, The Foghorn by Ray Bradbury. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today's episode is one of my personal favorites by Ray Bradbury for a number of different reasons, as we'll outline later. It's a very simple story. It's about a lighthouse manned by two lighthouse keepers in a remote location. And the old lighthouse keeper tells the young lighthouse keeper, every year on this date, he's visited by a giant dinosaur that comes up out of the deeps of the ocean. And just as predicted, they turn the foghorn on and the giant dinosaur shows up apparently attracted by the sound of the foghorn, which must remind him of other dinosaurs that are long gone. And the young guy, for some reason, which I don't really remember, turns off the foghorn, and the dinosaur becomes very angry, and he destroys the lighthouse. It's a very short story, but very effective, very moody, very evocative. They imply as part of the story that the dinosaur is in its mating season, and that's why it's the same time of year. Yes, it's drawn to the surface normally at that time of year every year, and the sound of the foghorn draws it to the actual lighthouse. And I think part of the point of the ending is speculating on how many millennia it had been lonely and alone looking for another dinosaur. Yeah, that's why it's a very evocative story, because it captures the mood of loneliness, the two lighthouse keepers in this remote location, but the character of the dinosaur as described by the old lighthouse keeper. That's life for you, said McDunn. Someone always waiting for someone who never comes home. Always someone loving something more than that thing loves them. And after a while, you want to destroy whatever that thing is, so it can't Hurt you no more. You know, I had a thought about that particular line. Sure. So your opinion, is that line an unnecessary explanation of the story, or does it add to the story? It adds to the mood of the story, which, as as I said, was very evocative, 
touching on the theme of loneliness and isolation. So I think it goes along well with the rest of the story. Okay, fair enough. So this reminded me of a favorite writer of mine, William Hope Hodgson. He was a writer at the beginning of the 20th century who was relatively popular, who wrote stories about the sea. And some of them were fairly straightforward sea adventure stories, but many of them were very dark, supernatural, spooky sea stories. Matter of fact, he's the king of spooky sea stories. He had stories about ships that were floating around with no crew, everyone's dead, haunted ships. He had many stories about the Sargasso Sea. He was the guy that was able to imbue the sea with a character of darkness and supernatural fear and spookiness, I guess is no better way to put it. And I'm sure that Ray Bradbury was probably someone who had, at one point or another had read William Hope Hodgson, and I'm thinking this story was to some degree influenced by that. But like I said, it's a favorite of mine going back to my teenage years. I'd been a Ray Bradbury fan when I was young, and I had heard that he had written this story that supposedly influenced the giant monster movie era of the 1950s. So I looked it up and read it and, and enjoyed it. What did you think of the story? Obviously, it's very poetic, of course. It's Bradbury. I don't think it's a monster story. I think it's a loneliness story. That's a good way to put it, I think. A loneliness story with a monster in it. And it has some similarities with King Kong. King Kong, looking for someone, ended up killing him. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that provides a really good segue into the rest of our discussion. The reason I believe that this is a story that a science fiction fan should read is if you're a fan of the giant monster movies of the 1950s, this story helped to launch that craze. It was somewhat indirectly, and we'll have a little bit of a story to tell about that. But you mentioned King Kong. Yeah. So in 1952, the original King Kong movie was re-released to theaters, and it was a huge success all around the world. And that told the studios that there was money to be made with giant monster movies. So the first one out of the box, its working title was The Monster Under the Sea. There was a producer in Hollywood who started work actually in 1951. He'd already started working on an idea that he called the monster from under the sea. And they were looking around at how they were going to produce this movie. They thought about doing a man in a suit. They thought about photographing lizards. And they wound up contacting Ray Harryhausen. Now, Ray Harryhausen, at that point in the early 1950s, had not done special effects all on his own. He had done some short features that were animated fairy tales that were just shorts. He had done a number of those in the late 40s uh, up to 1950. And he had participated in the special effects for the movie Mighty Joe Young. Now, Mighty Joe Young was sort of a kid's King Kong movie that was done in part by the original animator, Willis O'Brien, who did the effects back in 1933 for the original King Kong. Was that the one where the Kong monster sank into the sea and he's like holding? No, no, that, that was Son of Kong, Okay, which was an immediate sequel of the original King Kong. This was one that where it was a giant ape and he was kind of goofy and friendly. 
And at the end of the movie, he saved orphans from a burning orphanage. So it was kind of a kid's movie. But that was his big break into Hollywood, was working on that movie. And I'm not going to go into too long of it, a digression here, but Ray Harryhausen was able to figure out a new way of doing stop-motion animation that was much more affordable and more effective than Willis O'Brien's much more laborious, time-consuming process. Harryhausen's was also time-consuming and laborious, but in a much more efficient manner, and he was able to do it in a more cost-effective, which for a low-budget movie like this movie, which was only produced with a $150,000 budget, that was exactly what they needed. Was there a major technological change, or was it in the details? Yes. What it was, it was a combination of rear projection and matting. But basically, what Willis O'Brien did was he had his dinosaurs and King Kong on a little stage, and then he had a sheet of glass in front of the puppets that was painted with like jungle foliage or New York City or whatever it may be. Foreground. Foreground. And then the background was a painting or some fake plants or something, whatever. And he would photograph directly through that glass to photograph the monsters. But what Harryhausen figured out was that you could do rear projection in the background and you could film like the background that this monster would be operating in, New York or wherever, and you could match up the film that you're projecting rear projection with the actual animation work you're doing in front of it, and then there was an additional screen in front where you could add a whole other level. It's a little bit complicated, but basically he came up with a new way of doing it that added another level of quality to the work, but also made the whole process more efficient and therefore less expensive, which was very important because that's what really kicked off the giant monster boom was Harryhausen's ability to do these special effects relatively cheaply. It must have been an experience to see it for the first time, what seemingly looks like a giant monster walking down a street. That would have been cool. Well, I think you're exactly right, because the movie, which was retitled The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and we'll get to why that title change was made in a minute, was a huge success. It was a $5 million box office, which was the ninth biggest movie of 1953. So on a budget of $150,000, they had a $5 million box office. So obviously that was enormously profitable. That movie kicked off the giant monster craze of the 1950s due to that enormous success. So obviously the same producers rushed ahead to make more movies along the same lines. So that's where Harryhausen wound up making movies like it came from Beneath the Sea with the Giant Octopus, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, 20 Million Years to Earth. He had this relationship with these producers that allowed him to continue making his special effects, and they were all fairly successful. Maybe not as successful as the very first one, but they were successful enough, considering, again, that they were being made on very low budgets. You know, I just have a small comment on the title. It's the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. A fathom is six feet. That means the beast came from 22 and three quarters miles below, which is the Earth's upper mantle. It's marketing. But the producers are not responsible. I'll tell you who's responsible for that scientific error. A marketer? Yes. 
an editor. But let me get to that. So that gets to the little story here that I wanted to elaborate on. When Harryhausen came in to work on the special effects, he was hired in May of 1952. Now, almost one year previous to that, Ray Bradbury's Foghorn story was published in the Saturday Evening Post. So this is one year after the publication of the short story. However, it was not called The Foghorn in the Saturday Evening Post. That was Bradbury's title. The editors of the Saturday Evening Post gave it the name The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. So it's the editors of the Saturday Evening Post who wound up making that technical error. And again, I'm sure it was some marketing advertising person who really didn't give a hoot about scientific accuracy because it's a story about a giant dinosaur. Who cares, you know? So that's who's responsible for that error. Now, apparently that was a fairly well-received story. There are a number of different tellings of how the connection between this story and the movie occurred. In his autobiography, Harryhausen claims that the initial script that he was given by the producers already had a scene where a dinosaur attacks a lighthouse. But then he goes on to contradict himself later in the book when he says that one of the producers came into a script meeting waving a copy of the Saturday Evening Post saying, this is great, we've got to include a foghorn scene in this movie. I didn't realize that was a contradiction because you were bringing me to your side on this argument, but I hadn't realized that that was a contradiction. If it is, now I don't know where I stand. Bear in mind, this is Harryhausen's story. Harryhausen's story is that he had nothing to do with adding the lighthouse sequence in the movie. Now, one thing to remember here, this is very important, he and Ray Bradbury were best friends and had been best friends since the late 1930s. But when they were both teenagers, they were both in love with the movie King Kong. They were in love with dinosaurs. They were in love with science fiction. So I always thought it was a very interesting coincidence that Ray Bradbury publishes this story about a dinosaur attacking a lighthouse in 1951. And then a year or two later, Harryhausen, his best friend, makes a movie where a dinosaur attacks a lighthouse. Now, the story that Harryhausen said is that someone noticed the fact that there was this story that Ray Bradbury had written where a dinosaur attacks a lighthouse and said, oh, that's an interesting coincidence. Maybe we should pay Ray Bradbury some money and then use his name and the Saturday Evening Post name in promotion of the movie, which is what they did. They paid him some money. And then in the trailer, if you actually go back and watch the original trailer, it says, from the Saturday Evening Post spectacular. They definitely used Bradbury and the Saturday Evening Post as a means to hype the movie. So the way I see it now is there's two possibilities. One, that some producer saw the Saturday Evening Post story, just looked at the picture, said, that's a lovely image, we got to do that, and did not use the rest of the story. That is that is one explanation, yes. Or Harryhausen intentionally added a lighthouse scene in there, waited a while, and said, hey guys, remember that lighthouse scene? We may have a problem. Yes, there's two explanations here. That the producers read the story before they even hired Harryhausen and stole from the story, basically. Harryhausen came in, and because he's Ray Bradbury's best friend, he immediately realized they had stolen from his story and 
probably prompted them to go to Bradbury to get his permission to pay him for the story and use his name in promotion. That's one theory. The other theory, which is what I was working on, and unfortunately I was not able to confirm, is that it wasn't the producers that put the dinosaur and the lighthouse in the movie. It was Harryhausen, because obviously he would have known about the story. I'm sure he and Bradbury talked about it when Bradbury was writing the story. They both loved dinosaurs. I'm sure it was something they was well aware of coming into it. And here's the thing people need to understand. The Ray Harryhausen movies, he was as much the screenwriter and even the director of those movies as the actual director and screenwriters because he had to come up with all the sequences that were animated, all of the dinosaur attack sequences and everything. He came up with that and he was involved in shaping the script and the direction. He had an enormous influence on the structure of the movie. If he came in and said, I'm going to put a dinosaur attacking a lighthouse in this movie, the producers would have said, yeah, that sounds good. And then at some point during the process, after he did that, somebody noticed that this was already done in the Saturday Evening Post. And Harry House was like, oh, gee, I guess you should probably give him some money for that and use his name in promoting the movie. My theory was that Bradbury and Harryhausen could have cooked this up to get some cash for Bradbury, to get some more recognition, to boost his career, and to do a favor. I mean, they were best friends, doing a favor for his best friend. And I think we can agree, either way, there's no plagiarism. No. It's a single scene and image. No court would call that plagiarism. It's, I don't know. It just became a convenient way that the producers are perfectly happy to do to attach his name to the movie. Right. Bradbury himself has said, which is the least believable thing of this whole story, that he was visiting Harryhausen during production of this movie and just happened to notice that there was a scene with the dinosaur attacking a lighthouse and said, gee, Ray, did you know that I put a story out last year that had that in there? Oh, gosh, Ray, I didn't know that. Apparently, we haven't spoken for the last 18 months, so I didn't know. Yeah, that's bullshit. That's Bradbury's version of events, which is why I was always suspicious of this whole thing. So anyway, that was a a bit of a long diversion. It's something I looked into to satisfy my own curiosity. But unfortunately, there's no way of ever knowing for sure because the producers are long dead and they can't corroborate any of this. So it's entirely up to Bradbury and Harryhausen's version of events. So that was the first big monster movie. That was a enormously influential, very successful monster movie. It was not only influential here in America, like I said, Harryhausen went on to make several more monster movies and Earth versus the Flying Saucers in later years, but it was enormously influential in the country of Japan. When King Kong and then Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, both were very successful at the Japanese box office. One of the producers at Toho Studios decided, just like many producers in America decided, that he wanted to make a giant monster movie, which wound up becoming the project Gojira, which we otherwise know here in the West as Godzilla. So Godzilla was directly influenced by Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I guess we can thank him for that. Absolutely. So enormously successful, enormously influential. So I thought, since we're on the topic, that we could talk about our favorite giant monster movies of the 1950s. I'm going to start out with one of my favorite Harryhausen movies. It came from Beneath the Sea. 
Now, that was a Roger Corman movie, wasn't it? Nope. He worked with the same producers that he worked with on The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Okay. Actually, what it was is he hooked up with a producer named Charles Schneer, who became his partner throughout the rest of his life on making these movies. And Schneer was affiliated with Columbia Studios, which was the studio that put out Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. But that's the Giant Octopus movie. And I've always loved Giant Octopuses. You remember the great scene in Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea where they battle a giant squid? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's one of my favorite things of all time. So any movie that's got a giant octopus in it is gets high marks in my book. And that's probably the great all-time great giant octopus movie. It attacks San Francisco, tears up the Golden Gate Bridge. Got Kenneth Toby in it, who was the star of The Thing from Another World. I think he's the perfect giant monster movies in the 1950s leading man. He's that rock solid, kind of cool, very tough sort of guy. He always played either cops or military officers. What was his name again? Kenneth Toby. Kenneth Toby. Okay. Well, if I had to pick one, and it's in my movie pick, it'd be Peter Graves, because he was usually the knowledgeable scientist who was calmly figuring out how to drive away the giant thing that week. You know, most of these movies had one or the other or a combination of the two. Like your typical giant monster movie had a military guy who was kind of in charge of destroying the animal, and then the scientist guy yeah, who wanted to study it or help come up with the scientific gizmo that was needed to destroy the monster. So yeah, Peter Graves is probably half of that, and then Kenneth Toby would be the other half. As a matter of fact, in It Came From Beneath the Sea, it had Kenneth Toby as, he was a submarine commander, and then there was another guy, I don't remember the actor's name, and a woman, Faith Domerg, both played the scientist roles, and that was the pattern that was in just about every movie that we're going to talk about, all of the giant monster movies. Well, my first pick is called The Beginning of the End, and it stars Peter Graves, which is one of the reasons to like it. This is the giant grasshoppers crawling on photographs movie. Yes. Also, what I love about the movie is in the beginning, they're leaving a line of destroyed sugar warehouses on the way to <laughs> Chicago, eating all the sugar. And I'm not even sure if grasshoppers eat sugar. I don't know. but I know they eat other bugs. But there's another movie, I think a giant locust, which starts out with a sugar warehouse. No. no that's them. That's them. Them, yes. So anyway, when... The giant grasshoppers get to Chicago. There is this wonderful scene of showing them crawling up what was then an iconic Chicago building and literally being blown down with a hairdryer. And if you watch, you can see at least one of the grasshoppers sliding out into bare sky and then being blown down again. <laughs> so that's Bert I. Gordon, the producer who specialized in very low budget, not very good special effects movies throughout the 1950s including one of my favorites, The War of the Colossal Beast, which was a giant man in a diaper. Oh, yes. Who got made giant by a radioactive blast. One of the reasons I love that movie is because the military guy in that movie is named Colonel Baird. Oh, they shoot him in the eye with a missile, don't they? Is that the one? Or is that the incredible growing man? <laughs> incredible growing man. I can't remember. <laughs> That's the worst title ever. <laughs> the incredible... 
Growing Man. Hey, Shrinking Man did well in the box office. <laughs> yeah, it's that, that was the original title. Yes. And one of the marketing people came in and, what are you guys, a bunch of idiots? <laughs> He's an amazing colossal man. <laughs> the beginning of the end brings up a secondary monster movie problem that I'm always interested in. It's when you don't have one monster, you have a bunch of them. And there's always this problem. Because you're limited, you basically have to come up with some excuse how you can kill the whole group of monsters with a single act. For example, in Puppet Masters, Heinlein has these alien parasites communicate with each other under certain circumstances by kind of merging together for a while. That allows him to say, oh, well, we can just treat it like one giant organism and infect one, we infect them all. Oh, download a virus into their software? Exactly. <laughs> or how do we get all the bats to fly into one cave so we can press one button and destroy them? In beginning of the end, they do it by generating a high-frequency sound that attracts them all to this one location in downtown Chicago, which makes me wonder if you can attract the giant locusts to one location. How about the marsh? Not downtown Chicago. That's a hell of a cleanup problem, which is always one of the things, ever since I was a little kid, I always wondered about King Kong. Because the final scene of the movie, King Kong's laying smashed on the street. And I'm thinking, okay, after everything's done in the movie and all that, how do they get dead King Kong out of New York? That's a story in and of itself that I would like to write someday. The disposal yeah. of King Kong. Well, you've seen the video where they blow up the dead whale, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> I wonder if it was like something like that. I'm going to put that on my short story list to write someday. The next one that I have is a movie called Black Scorpion, which was done by Willis O'Brien, who we mentioned earlier, the animator for King Kong. This was one of only a handful of movies that Willis O'Brien did after King Kong. He did very little in the 1940s. He struggled to get movies made. He did make Mighty Joe Young. 1949, and he only made, I believe, two movies in the entire 1950s, Black Scorpion, and then another one called The Giant Behemoth. It's about a giant brontosaurus. Black Scorpion, I love because it's really kind of scary. I mean, scorpions themselves, I think, are scary. They're like spiders. They're just very alien. They've got those big, nasty stingers. And at one point, they go down into a cavern in the earth to try to find the giant scorpions and there's all kinds of other bugs down there it's just one of the more creepy and scary giant monster movies of the 1950s that's why i love it i hope i'm not taking too much time but there's a great story about i think it was ivan t sanderson was in south america the the, the cryptozoology guy yes right? i read his books when i was a kid ah and at one point he is i guess it's spelunking he's wiggling himself down this long hole in a rock and he gets to the end and he's not in trouble or anything but to get out it's more convenient for him to flip over first and then go out face up and that's when he discovers that the ceiling of the space he's been crawling through is just covered with scorpions ah see that's what i'm saying scorpions are creepy how about another one for you okay an oddball one i'm not sure if it counts as a giant monster but it's close enough chronos that's a great movie. Kronos is the name of a giant alien robot that is dropped off the coast of Mexico. It's starring Jeff Morrow, great voice. 
who was in many science fiction movies in the 1950s. Yes, he played Exeter in The Silent Earth, which is kind of a favorite of mine. Yep. So this giant robot is there to gather up all of Earth's energy. What I like about it is they really worked with their limitations. The robot is animated in probably the cheapest possible way. Yeah, like like Disney animation, not Ray Harryhausen animation. Yeah, but the design of the robot was so basic and simple, and its movements were so simple, it still works. Yeah, that's a cool little movie because it's got such an interesting monster in it. It's a little bit more science-y than some of these other ones where they're having discussions about the science of it and what science is going to be needed to destroy it. I would put it on my list, too. It's, it's a good little movie. And by giant robot, I mean it's large enough for them to land a helicopter on. It's a building. It's like a 20-story building. Yeah. A gigantic structure that just remorselessly marches across the landscape. Another favorite of mine is the Deadly Mantis. And the reason I love that one is because it's perfectly executed. If you wanted to take the perfect example of a 1950s giant monster movie... The Deadly Mattis is the perfect, perfect template for that type of movie because it starts out just as The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms does where there's a remote location and strange things start to happen. Planes are disappearing. Planes are crashing. They go to the crash site. They find giant footprints. Is that the one that starts in the Arctic? Yep. Okay. Yep. Just like The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms did. So they were really ripping off the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, but they did it in a way that followed a formula very tightly that's a perfect formula. And then eventually the giant mantis shows up and they see it for the first time and it attacks an outpost and gradually makes its way down to New York City. So it follows the perfect formula. The effects, they're not animated effects, but they're fairly well done. So the monster's pretty believable. And it's got the standard formula. It's got the military guy. It's got the science guy. It's got a woman in it who's who makes a lot of coffee. So it follows the formula perfectly. It's perfectly executed. Always a favorite of mine. Well, my next one is Them, which we already mentioned once because of the sugar warehouses. And it also, like beginning of the end, has the same problem of many monsters, how do we kill them as one? Starring Edmund Gwen, which... Who is the science guy. Yes, the bumbling science guy with the hot daughter who yes. falls in love with the soldier. No, it's a cop and an FBI guy. Ah, okay. So James Whitmore plays the local cop. And then Matt Dillon, the actor who played Matt Dillon, is the FBI guy. You are so much better at recognizing faces and remembering names than I. I never realized that that was Matt Dillon. Yeah, yeah. It's one of his early roles, right after he was the monster in The Thing from Another World. I always wondered, when the scene shifted from the desert, where they first encountered the ants, to Los Angeles, why did the local cop have to come along? It's like they brought along James Whitmore to be like a key member of the team going after the ants for no real reason that I could figure. Well, you know, now that you mention it, I can think of at least two other movies that did that. And they had hand waves about, well, you're one of the team now, or I better get in on this too. We're going to need your experience, deputy. Yes, well, I have gone on many picnics. But he was a World War II veteran, and he knew how to use a Tommy gun. That was a good qualification. Because he did wind up using a Tommy gun at the end of the movie. That was one of the classics. 
that was the follow-up movie that cemented the idea of giant monster movies in Hollywood. Like Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, it was hugely successful. And the props were pretty good. Yeah, they're okay. Well, I mean, you make a giant ant in 1953. <laughs> we're going to get to bad monster props shortly here. But yeah, I'd say that they were acceptable for the time. Do you have another before I give an honorable mention? Yeah, I do. Okay. So my, my last choice here on the list is Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Not Gojira, the original Japanese version, but the Americanized version with Raymond Burr. To this day, I still love that movie, even though I've seen Gojira and, and recognized Gojira as one of the greatest Japanese movies of all time. Forget being a great monster movie, just one of the great Japanese movies of all time. The most serious and well-made giant monster movie ever, I think. And you know what? I grew up watching Godzilla King of the Monsters with Raymond Burr. He's just like the perfect viewpoint character in a giant monster movie because he's friggin' Raymond Burr who could read the goddamn phone book and make it sound dramatic. It's been decades since I've seen that version. Does he say much? I thought oh, I remember him. He talks constantly throughout it because he's a reporter. So he's like dictating his overly dramatic newspaper reports into a microphone or a tape recorder or live on air at one point. There's a voiceover. So there's a constant voiceover too from him. I wonder if I saw a weird cut because I just remember him sitting. No, oh, you know what I think you're thinking of? I think you're thinking of Godzilla 1984, which was the many decades later revival of Godzilla where they brought him back. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I could be. But at any rate, I just love that movie because that was one of my introductions to Godzilla. I think of all of the dubbed Japanese movies, that's the best. So I would like to give an honorable mention to The Giant Claw, which if you have the opportunity to see, I highly recommend. Just imagine a giant monster movie made by Sid and Marty Croft. <laughs> of H&R Puffin Stuff fame. Yes. And the Bugaloos and... That weird English kid with the yeah, pipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are really terrible shows. I was just becoming a teenager when those came out, so I really hated them. You're right about the giant vulture in that movie being one of the worst puppets ever made. Yes, yes. And then we'd both like to mention the giant spider invasion. Made in Wisconsin. Northern Wisconsin. Up there, up north, eh? It was made in three cities in northern Wisconsin, Gleason, Tomahawk, and Merrill. And at least one of them, to this day, celebrates this is the city where it was made kind of thing. And you're being generous by calling Tomahawk and Merrill cities. I can see why. They, that would be something that they would have to celebrate because they probably don't have a lot else to celebrate. That's a terrible movie. Well, it has its charms. You recall the giant spider in the end, how they did that. They built a mechanical spider on top of a Volkswagen that's creative filmmaking. And they used the headlights for the eyes. It's unbelievable. It's <laughs> just, just go on YouTube and see if you can get a clip showing the mechanical spider on top of the Volkswagen. It's probably the worst practical effect in the history of monster movies. <laughs> Even the, the giant claw may not be as bad as the giant spider on top of Volkswagen. Yeah, a close second might be other spider scenes in the same movie. <laughs> yeah. Any others to recommend or reminisce fondly over? I think there are a million out there, and there are yeah, so I many. I them all. 
yeah, it boils down to what you've been exposed to and how many VHS channels you had when you were a kid. Right. Well, that's it for episode 39. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the stars. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.